Again, welcome to our new members. It's so good to have you here. I see you sitting out there beaming. It's, uh, it's great to have you part of us. If you're visiting for the first time, I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm delighted to have you join us for worship today. We're here to meet God, hear what he has to say to us. Tuesday was momentous because we moved the coffee maker, right? Remember the uh, explorer Cortez, who when he got to the New World, he burned his boats so that they couldn't go back? That moving the coffee maker for me is kind of like burning the boats. We, we're no going back now, so we are, we are there, and it's been exciting. We also um, put together a king-sized bed. We've never owned one. We put a, a king-sized bed together, which was cool, but what was a little scary was uh, putting the memory foam mattress on it because it comes in an extraordinarily small box for such a big, big mattress. And honestly, it's a little scary. You know, you're, you're kind of cutting away at the tape, but you just know that this thing is going to explode in a moment and, and envelop you like Jabba the Hutt filling the, the, the room there. So we managed to escape um, uh, unscathed and have slept on it. It smells a little rubbery, but I, I, I guess that's going to work it past that too. But it's just great. You know, I, I've served here for more than 30 years, and it actually has always been my dream of living in the community that I actually have a church in. And uh, I'd kind of given up on that. And the Lord in his kindness said, no, I got a surprise for you. So we are really excited. So excited. We're going to have a a few weeks from now, all the whole church, we want to have you come over for coffee. Okay. All of you, you'll have to carpool and I'm sure the neighbors are going to love it, but we'll get the word out to when, when that happens. So you willing to come over and join us for a a coffee clatch? Uh, That'll be cool. Yeah. We'll rock the place. How many of you read my blog this last week about the passing of Reverend Dr. Billy Graham? Only only eight of you? I read. I write well. You ought to read what I write. Um, it was. It struck me in a very profound way uh, his passing, and I shared in my blog a couple of instances where I had a chance to hear him. One was in Amsterdam uh, at a World Evangelism Conference way back in 1986. The other was here, and when he came to Tacoma in 1991, our church, Chapel Hill, was a part of the group pulling all of that together. So uh, it, was, it was very cool, and I, I, we began to elicit a bunch of responses from you about the ways that you engaged uh, Reverend Graham. Um, I, I heard, for instance, Sheila Neslin, one of our Chapel Hill Billies, uh, she tells of the time that she was standing next to Billy Graham in the basement of a Baptist church in Seattle in 1951, because it was his birthday, and they threw a birthday party for him with a cake that was shaped like a Bible. Isn't that cool? And she was just sharing the fact that he was standing right there next to him. And then I, I talked to Lowell and Dottie Hot, Hartcorn. Um, Billy Graham, in that very first com- uh, evangelistic crusade in Los Angeles that made him fam- famous, he was staying in their house. And she gave her life to Christ at the children's crusade, and she wanted to stay home so that she could tell Papa Billy when he came back and and he lifted her up in her in her arms and and swung her and delighted with her having given her life to Christ that's astounding and then later on his wife introduced the two of them and Billy Graham did their wedding ceremony now that one better not fail i mean if you can't if billy doesn't stick you together i don't know what now they're still going strong so that was very cool my own Kathy Berry my assistant um, she tells of walking down the stairs of a crusade at four years of age, holding onto the hands of her two brothers, and she went forward to give her life to Christ. That's just amazing, isn't it? I'll bet you've got a lot of stories. I'd be curious. How many ever went to a Billy Graham crusade? Anyone? More than one? Uh, How many worked a a Billy Graham crusade? 
did any, anybody give their life to Christ? Got a Billy Graham crusade. Over here. Did you? Which one? 76. Where was it? The kingdom. Anyone else give their life to Christ under his leadership? Yes, when, Jeannie? 91 here, Tacoma. You know, last night we had another guy who raised his hands. I said, when? It was Tacoma. I said, we were working for you. We were praying for you. So we were working and praying for you too. Uh, we, we just, it, we were a part of that incredible time. I couldn't see up there. Anyone? Well, that's any, it's just really amazing. You know, um, I don't think we'll see the likes of him again. I'm not sure our, our culture will allow us to have someone like this. He preached to 215 million people in the course of his ministry, more than any person in human history. Undoubtedly, he led more people to Christ than any person in human history. And I dare say that he has to be among the most revered and respected of religious leaders in all of uh, human history. The greatest thing is that he uh, ended with, he finished strong. You know, Paul writes about, I fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. He finished the race. Not a whiff of scandal. In a time when we see these religious leaders just fall and collapse to our shame and to the reproach of the Lord and the church, he was strong to the end. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome? Billy wrote these words, and um, I want to share them with you. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. And so I think we join with, with Christians and perhaps non-Christians across the world who would be willing to concede this. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Say that with me. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. What a great man. Yeah. We continue our journey through the, the um, really the monumental book of Romans, and we are, we are kind of stewing in the juices of this great chapter 8. And today we come to what is an epic passage of Scripture. Uh, one of the most uh, well-known passages, not only of Paul's writings, but in all of the Bible. It is such a powerful promise, such a source of great comfort. And it has also been very misused at times and misunderstood at times. And the best way that you don't misuse or misunderstand a text is to look at its context, to see what surrounds it, to where, where it is where it's nested. And so that's what we're going to do in our passage today. I want you to turn, if you care to, to Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 26, and listen to the whole of this section with that wonderful jewel smack dab there in the middle. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for all the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for all those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified those whom he justified, 
he also glorified. This is the glorious word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this gift, for this titanic promise. I pray, God, that I will do justice to it, and it will only happen if your spirit is at work interpreting and and sticking this right into our soul. So would you do that, please, for us? In Jesus' name, amen. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. There it is. That's a monumental text. You're going to find few others that will bring such encouragement, such power, such a promise. I memorized that when I was a kid. How many of you have memorized that verse at some time in your life? Romans 8, 28. How many recognize it as I, as I recite this? How many have heard this, remember hearing it? You know, lots of scripture we don't recall hearing, but this is one that, that sticks out. Last week, we, uh, it, we engaged in a painful but really helpful journey into the reality of suffering and how God uses suffering even. Our sovereign, powerful God uses even suffering to shape us into the image of his son and to prepare us for heaven. It was a, it's a remarkable assertion. Well, it's almost like Paul doubles down. The deeper he gets into the text, the more he wants to say. And now he's telling us not only suffering, but he goes on to say that everything, every single thing that you encounter in your life, that you endure in your life, that you face in your life, everything will work out for good. One commentator describes Romans 8.28 as the pillow on which we rest our weary heads. Isn't that good? The pillow on which we rest our weary heads. All will be well. Everything will pan out. Right? Mm, Almost. But that's not exactly what the passage says. Honestly, this passage has been misused. And it is easy to treat this as kind of a spiritual version of positive thinking, of wishful thinking. So kind of keep your spiritual fingers crossed, knock on spiritual wood, everything's going to come out in the wash. But that's not what the verse says. The good news is what the verse says is so much better than that, so much more than that, so much more powerful than that. So let's take a look at it. Unfortunately, the version that you have in your Bible, uh, Bibles in front of you in the pews, I don't like it. I normally like the ESV, the version that we have, a lot, but I don't like the way it translates this verse. I don't think it does justice to it because it seems to say that the things will just sort of work out. Look look at it again. We know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good. See what I mean? If If you love God, all things will just kind of sort themselves out. But the original Greek says something that's so much stronger than that. And so at the risk of pretending I know more about Greek than I do, I'm going to give you the MJT translation of the Greek. Here it is. This is a better way of reading the Greek. It goes like this. And we know that to the ones loving God, God works together all things for good. You see that? It's a subtle difference, but it is very important. To the ones loving God, God works together all things for good. It is not the things that work themselves out. It is God who works all things out. This is not an assurance that if you just hang in there long enough, somehow everything's going to be okay. It is rather a promise that if you love God, by the way, that's one of the few times that Paul writes of us loving God. Most of all, most of the time he writes about God loving us. 
This is one of the few times where he said, but if you love God, he said, if you love God, if you're one of his adopted kids, God is working all things in your life for his good purpose. All of them, every single one of them, whatever you face, whatever you're going through, whatever part of your life seems out of control, if you love God, if you surrender yourself to the purposes that he has for you, there's nothing that you're enduring that he cannot make use of. Nothing you're suffering that he cannot take and use. Nothing that seems wasteful that he cannot redeem. What a promise. You see what I mean? Romans 8.28 is a bold assertion that God is at work in every aspect of your life for his divine purposes. This is all about God. It is not about you, not about your plan, not about your effort. It is not about some finger-crossed spiritual mumbo-jumbo, let's hope for the best. This is about a sovereign God intimately involved in every aspect of his children's lives. And to make that point, what I need us to do is look on either side of that text. I want us to look at the context. So we're going to back up, first of all, to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we know that we do not know how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with moanings too too deep for words. I thought I was going to be taken really captivated because every... Every week I preach, as each pastor does, we, you mull the passage, you stew on the passage, you reflect on it and pray about it. And of course, I, I thought that Romans 8, 28 would be the part that I was really landing on. But I was surprised at how captivated I was by this passage, by this verse, 26 and 27. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Think about that. I told you that we have moved into our new house, but what I had not told you is that what a mess it still is. I mean, we got boxes and boxes lining the hallways. We got tools all over the place. It's, it's just a mess. I've got this like seemingly endless punch list of things that I got to do until we are really settled in. And of course, I've owned a house before I know it never ends. You always got a punch list. But I, as I've begun to tackle those, chi- uh, those projects, I'm realizing... I'm not as young as I used to be. And one of the dead giveaways has been the old man grunt. Do you you know what the old man grunt is? It's when you reach down to pick up a piece of Ikea part, an Ikea part, like there's been a million of them. Did I tell you I carried 47 boxes out of Ikea? 47. Do you know how many tiny little awful parts there are. So anyway, I digress. So the old man grunt comes into play when you've got to reach down to pick up one of those little Ikea parts and you go, you stand up and say, is my dad in the room? That's the old man grunt. It's a grunt of weariness, a grunt of, uh, my dad was here for a service when I said that he, I think he's mad at me. He'll forgive me though, but it's true. The old man grunt is this grunt of weariness of of even sometimes of, of futility. What am I, what, what's the point of this? Do you realize how much grunting there is in Romans chapter 8? How much groaning there is? Did you pay attention? Last week we are told, Paul says, that creation groans. Remember that? It's like creation is in labor, going through labor pains. That's how much groaning creation. Why? Because creation has been cursed by the fall of humanity. And creation is groaning under the weight of that curse saying, when are you humans going to get your stuff together? 
Because until we are redeemed, creation continues to be the collateral damage in the fall. Paul says all of creation groans. And then he goes on to say, but not just creation, we groan too. We human beings groan too. Why is that? Because, I'll put it this way, we are half saved. We are half saved. What does that mean? What do I mean by that? Paul writes that we have the Holy Spirit on deposit in us. It's a down payment living in us. It's a promise. In other words, he says, I put the down payment. I'm going to finish redeeming you. That day will come. I mean, that work is going to be done. And we are told that we have been justified by Christ. In a moment, God pronounces us uh, when we receive Jesus. We, he pronounces us uh, justified, forgiven, children of God. So all of those things are true. And all of those things are assured us. And yet we live in this in-between, between the already and the not yet. Although we have those great promises that we are gods, that we are saved, that we will experience his glorious presence someday, we still are bound in these sinful bodies. We are still continuing in a, a, a battle with sin. And from time to time, we groan because we are aware that we are living in between the already and the not yet. We're in that in-between zone. We are half saved. And so we groan. This week, I got a call from one of my friends, an email from him. He's a, uh, he's a young dad, and his cancer is back. I love this guy. I love their family. And, and it means he's going to be back into an experimental course of, of treatment. He's been doing really well. And when I saw this email, literally, I groaned out loud. This week, uh, there were tributes coming out for Billy Graham uh, all, all across the world. But there was also some awful stuff being said. Maybe you saw some of the vile stuff in the blogosphere. Horrendous, awful things. And I, when I read some of what they had to say about a man I consider to be as close to saint as you're going to find, literally, I groaned. You know? What? And a couple nights ago, I was watching a a special on the killing fields. Remember the terrible tragedy in Cambodia after, World, after Vietnam War? Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, and they killed, was it a quarter of their population? They did it in horrendous ways. And I listened to an interview of a, an old man, one of two remaining, who survived this terrible torture prison, who described still with tears streaming down his face the exact <clears throat> nature of the torture he experienced and of and of watching his, his wife and his child being shot as he fled into the jungles for his life. And as I watched that, I, I groaned, literally. Oh, how horrible. And you, I know you get what I'm saying. We are all groaners at one time or another, aren't we, in our life? It's part of the burden of human life. But here's, what, here's another remarkable assertion that Paul makes. Not only is all of creation groaning because of us, not, all, not only are we groaning because we live in this half-saved state, we discover in this text today that there's another groaner. A, it's a trinity of groaners. Who is the groaner in this text? The Holy Spirit. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning for us. Last week, we learned that we are prepared for glory when we enter into the sufferings of Christ. Today, what a wonderful assertion we receive when we hear that the Spirit enters into our sufferings. The Spirit of Christ lives in us, in our weakness. 
And get this, this is the, the mind blower. Even when we cannot pray, when we do not know what it is we ought to say, when we are without words, we read, the Spirit prays for us. Prayers that are so perfect, so profound, they're not even words to express them. We read that the Spirit prays in, in, utter, in, in, in moans too deep for words, in groanings too deep for words. Did you know that the second... The, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, did you know that he lives in you and intercedes for you, is praying for you? Did you know that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, also intercedes for you and is praying for you? You'll find that out if you peek ahead in verse 34. We'll talk about it next week. It is an astounding assertion of how much we need prayer that two-thirds of the Trinitarian Godhead are praying to the Father on our behalf. But what a comfort to discover that. If Romans teaches us anything, it's that our salvation, our redemption, our sanctification, our justification, our glorification, all of those things, they are all the work of God. He does the work. We don't do the work. It is God who takes the initiative to save us. God who takes the initiative to love us. God who takes the initiative to transform us. God who will take the initiative one day to, to escort us into his presence and give us our glorified bodies. So we know that so far, but here we discover that God the Spirit even prays for us when we have nothing to say, when we are too lazy to pray, when we are too sinful to pray, whatever. The Spirit steps up and says, that's okay, Mark, I got this. I got this. Let me pray for you since you cannot. And he, because he is the spirit of God, lays our lives and our needs so perfectly before the Father that is exactly according to to God's will. Did you know that you have God the Spirit living inside of you, praying to God the Father for you? Wrap your brains around that one. And then... We jump to verse 29. So that's, on the, that's before this great verse. Now we jump to the other side of verse 29. And we discover the history of God's initiative in our lives. That's captured through a series of verbs. We see the verbs. So we, we read verbs like, for, he foreknew us and he predestined us. We'll come back to that one later. That takes a whole sermon. He predestined us and he called us and he justified us and he glorified us. So all of these verbs... All of this, this history of, of the process of our salvation. So who is it who's doing these things? Who is the actor of these verbs? Who, who is the, the, who's got the plan for our salvation in, in place? Whose initiative? Who is it? Oh, it is God. It is God. It is God. Every bit of this is God. And so in verse 27, we read that God the Spirit is praying for us and In verse 29, we read that God the Father is directing our life from beginning to end and then smack dab in the middle of those two declarations of God's eternal care for us. Like a big fat grace sandwich, we read, for those who love God, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. (laughs) So good. I want to look at a couple of things a little deeper there. First of all, notice how honest this text is. The text doesn't say only good stuff happens to God's people, right? 
We know that's not so. There are many things that happen to God, people that are not good. In fact, sometimes really awful, really bad, real horrible. I remember going to the, the funeral of, of a high school student, a Christian kid who was killed in a, in a drunk driving accident. And as you imagine, it was a deep, deep emotional time. The pastor got up and he said it was God's plan that this would happen. I almost leapt out of the pew to cry out, No! That is a horrible piece of theology. This is a broken world. This is a sinful world. You cannot attribute all of these horrible things that happen. You cannot say that it's God's good plan. What have you just done to the, to the faith or the non-faith of these high school kids that are sitting here and discovering that God intended that their friend be killed in this wreck? The two-year-old with cancer, is that God's good plan? The wife who is having an affair, is that God's good plan? Your kid who's in a, a web of drug addiction, is that God's good plan? Only a fiend would say something like that was good. They're not. They're horrible. They're bad. But I want to remind you what this text really says. And again, this is the MJT translation. For those who love God, God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The promise is that God will take every experience of your life, the good ones and the bad ones, and he will weave them together into something beautiful over which God can pronounce the ultimate benediction, which is good. All things work together for good. And may I just point out to you that that is a big deal. When God says something's good, that is a big deal. Think back to the creation account. Remember when God created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, vegetables, fruits, plant life, men, women. Remember, after he was done, each day, he, what word did he pronounce over his handiwork for that day? What did he say? It was, and when he, when he made man, what did he say about that? It was very good. This was God's benediction over his own creation. It was good. It was very good. God, so think about that. When we're reading this promise from Paul, he doesn't say that God just causes all things to work out so okay. God doesn't cause all things to work out. Uh, it'll, it'll wash out in the, in the wash. It'll be fine. Paul asserts God causes all things to work together for good. And when God says good, that's good. That's one thing I want us to think about. This is an extraordinary promise. The Bible is full of examples of this, how God takes evil and works it to his purpose. Think about the story of Joseph. I think Joseph may be the holiest man in all of Scripture, aside from Jesus. We never read of him, aside from some youthful arrogance perhaps, but we never read of him misbehaving. And he had every reason to misbehave. Here was a kid that was sold into slavery by his own brother, sent into Egypt. He is uh, betrayed and set up by a, a, a shunned Potiphar's wife. He's sent to prison. I mean, one time after another, if any guy had a right to say, boy, I'm just washing my hands of this whole God thing. And yet in the end, God wove all of that injustice, all of that evil into something good. It, he became the second man in the empire and saved not only the empire from, from famine, he saved his own family, the very family that sold him into slavery. If that's not an example of God working all things together for good, 
Moses. God did it with a man named Moses who was a murderer. God did it with a man named David who was an adulterer. But of course, the supreme example of how God works evil for good in his purpose would be the Lord Jesus himself. There has never been a more obviously evil act than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You look at it from the ground level and you would say it's the most grievous miscarriage of justice in human history. The sinless Son of God tortured and murdered. And yet God takes this greatest moment of evil and he works it for good into the greatest act of redemptive love that the world has ever known. This verse can be an incredibly great gift for comfort. But it can also be misused. And so I want to just give us a couple of pieces of advice on how we make use of this word. First of all, in the lives of others. If we use this word heartlessly, if we use this verse carelessly, it can actually bring pain. When we use this promise, we need to wield it cautiously. If I go to a young couple that has just lost... Uh, a, a child, and I whip out Romans eight twenty eight. Hey, all things are going to work together for good. It's going to God's. It's all part of God's plan. Do you think I'm, that's a blessing to them? That's a curse to them. If I if I'm talking to the grandparents who lost that grandbaby, they're not going to appreciate my wisdom, my counsel. They're going to probably uh, be angry with me, maybe hate me that I would say such a thing. We need. When we're approaching people in this point of pain, you need to do so with just incredible caution. It's funny, after the service, a woman came up to me who said, you remember when my husband died? I said, yes, he came and visited me. And she said, uh, you asked me what verses I would want in the service. And I said, I don't want Romans 8.28. And she said, you were exactly right. I was not ready for it then. It was too tender. She said, but later on, Romans 8.28 became precious to me. But at that time, I was too tender. So you were exactly right. Tell them what you said. Tell them again. We must wield it cautiously. We share this truth with tenderness and sensitivity and only by the guidance of the Spirit. Because if you begin to beat a suffering soul over the head with all things work together for good, you may do more harm than good. So wield it cautiously. But there is one person that you can go ahead and whip this verse out with. Who is it? you. You can yield to it recklessly. You're the person that can go ahead and engage this passage with yourself. You're the one who can quote this passage to yourself in whatever your circumstances. Store this away in your heart, young people. Save this passage in your heart. Memorize it. And when you find yourself facing things that seem out of control, when you find yourself facing things that seem evil or hopeless or helpless or harmful, you have full permission to yield recklessly to the promise of this passage. Turn it into your own verse. Personalize it like this. Say, I know that because I love God, God causes all things to work together for my good, Because I am called according to his purpose. Make it your own. Claim it for yourself. One of the many things on my punch list include earthquake preparedness. I know I got to get the stuff and store it somewhere. And I don't want to do it, but I know that if, if I don't, when the crisis strikes, we'll be in trouble. And so that's part of the thing that's on my list. This verse is earthquake preparedness for your soul. 
Every Christian ought to store it away in their heart. They may not use it now, but there will come a time when you want to dig down into your stores and pull this one out because you're going to need it. Now is your time to do that. Just imagine the the worst that life can throw at you, the worst that the devil can throw at you, the most awful, evil, rancid things that you might face. Just imagine this. Our sovereign God, our all-powerful God, is able to take all of those things and work them into something that is good. How would that affect the way that you look at your recent job loss? you were able to say, God can work this for my good and believe it. How would that affect the way that you would look at your struggling marriage? If you could say and believe it, God is going to work this out for my good. How would that affect the way that you respond to the bad biopsy that you just got back? God is going to work even this out for my good. In my travels in Europe, I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of castles, a lot of palaces, a lot of museums. And one of the things that you see draping these ancient walls are gorgeous tapestries. Perhaps some of you have seen them. These are hundreds and hundreds of years old. Often they are woven with golden threads. Uh, they are exquisite. They shimmer in the light. There are even some that I've seen that they've woven the eyes of the character in such a way that wherever you walk in the room, the eyes seem to follow you. It's kind of spooky, actually, but pretty cool. So it's beautiful. And that's it. But if you ever have the opportunity to turn that tapestry over, you see something different. You see a lot of dark threads. You see a lot of knots. You see things that go this way and that way, and it looks more of a jumble. Uh, and, and, and we are reminded, we're not intended to look at the back of the tapestry. We're intended to look at the front. But the front of what you see wouldn't exist were it not for the dark threads, the knots, the stuff on the back that makes all of that possible. I had a weaver who came up afterwards. She said, you know what about those dark threads? Not only do they make the gold stand out, they are the threads that actually hold hold all things together. You pull the dark threads out, the whole thing collapses on itself. You tell them that. I said, all right, I'll tell them that. (laughs) What do I know? I just look at them. This is precisely what the text has promised us. If I love God, then everything in my life, my good choices and my bad, my holiest moments and my moments of darkest sin, the most joyous moments of my life and those of deepest, darkest tragedy, the good, the bad, the ugly, the bright, the dark, the light, the glorious, every single thing God is going to use to weave together, those the threads he will use to weave together the tapestry of my life into a thing of exquisite beauty that will bring glory to him and glory to us ultimately. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let us pray. Ah, Lord, thank you. Thank you for bringing us to this mountaintop. Thank you for the privilege of being reminded that your Holy Spirit is at work caring for us, praying for us. Thank you for the promise that everything in our life, you are going to take it and use it for your good. And the condition is that we love you and that we are seeking to follow the call of that is upon our life. So Lord, we pray that both of those things would be true. 
that we would be your people, that we would love you, we would adore you, we would seek to follow you and your guidance for us in our life, whatever it might be. And in that, then, we're going to claim this promise that everything, you're going to work everything out for good. Thank you for the the gifts that you pour into our lives. We're going to receive an offering, Lord. And and really, this is an offering that is, is an act of gratitude because of your incredible grace and kindness shown to us from before we were even born. And even now, in the smallest things, a house, a job, chance to take a vacation. I mean, these are just incredible kindnesses, Lord, so we we give back to you with deep gratitude for all that you have done for us. We love you. We offer up these prayers to you.